Turn to Matthew 24 once. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus came back, I think, in 1914, quietly and visibly, into the secret room. Even though Jesus said Matthew 24, don't listen to them if they say, I've come quietly and secretly into a, some secret room. I don't know. You know, I mean, to me, it's, it's not that hard. I mean, you just read what the Bible says and believe it. But Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 26, Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, don't go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms. Don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. So right here in Matthew 24 and also in Revelation 19, we learn this event is going to be, listen, sudden, highly visible, and we as believers will have nothing to do in bringing it about. Now I say that last point because there are those who believe that the coming of the kingdom is a process that we Christians bring about through our political involvement and electing Christians to office. And listen, I believe in electing Christians to office. I do not believe that's going to bring the kingdom to the earth. Others think that we will usher in the kingdom by binding territorial demons that are over or controlling cities and nations. See, both of these groups believe that it's the church's responsibility to clean up the world and Christianize it so that Jesus can come back and take control of it. See, they believe it's, uh, it's on our shoulders. It's up to us. Jesus won't come back until we get this thing all cleaned up and Christianized. And, 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 and that's what we need to get involved in politics. That's what we need to really push to, to, to put Christians in key positions of leadership across the country and world because this is how we're going to Christianize nations and things and cities. And, and when we get it all cleaned up and Christianized, then he will come back and take possession of it. Well, these folks are called Reconstructionists or Kingdom Now people. But as I've said before, Jesus never told us to clean up the fish pond. He told us to fish in it. In fact, in John 17, the night before he went to the cross, he prayed in the garden to his father. And at one point he said, Father, I don't even pray for the world. I pray for those that you've given me out of the world, that they might be one with each other as you and I are one. Why didn't he pray for the world, the world system? Because he knew it was terminal. He knew that God was going to judge and destroy it. And that when he did, Christ would come back and establish a new world order, the kingdom age. I mean, God's judgment upon this present world is what we've been studying in Revelation chapter 6 through 18. The world is terminal. The world is controlled by the devil, the world system. And so God is going to wipe it out and replace it with a godly system where Jesus Christ is in control, reigning from Jerusalem over the whole earth. But in verse 11, John said, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now, this would have been very, um, very graphic to John, because in those days, they all knew. In those days, if a king came riding up to your city, riding on a white horse, a charger, uh-oh, that was trouble. Because if a king rode up on a white horse to your city, it meant he came as a conqueror to make war. If he rode up to your city on a donkey, that meant he came in peace. And of course, the first time Jesus came at his triumphal entry, right, which was the culmination of his first coming, 
How did he come riding into Jerusalem presenting himself as Messiah? Riding what? A donkey. He was not coming as a conqueror. He was coming as a savior. He wasn't coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He was coming as the Lamb of God who was going to take away the sin of the world by dying for our, in our place, thus allowing us to have peace with God as the Prince of Peace. Well, when he comes the second time, he is going to be coming on a white horse, signifying he is coming this time as a conqueror to make war with the inhabitants of the earth, the rebels who refuse to bow the knee to him to give glory to God. He is going to come make war with them and purge the earth of all these folks before he then establishes his kingdom. And we see it here. He's coming on a white horse and he judges and makes war. And verse 11 says, And he who sat on him, on this horse, was called Faithful and True. Notice the emphasis on Jesus' names. Faithful and True. These actually represent Jesus as a keeper of promises. Not only the promises that he has made to all of us who are his people, to give us eternal life, that we will never perish, that someday he was going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, that he was going to allow us to live in a kingdom where there was no more violence or death or sickness or heartache, a paradise, right? That's a promise he's given to us who are his people. But he's also made promises to those who refuse to become his people. Promises of coming judgment. You can read Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. He talks about there is coming a point when he's coming back. He's going to divide the nations like, uh, like sheep and goats, and he's going to judge those who have rejected him, right? There's all kinds of references to this throughout the New and Old Testament. In Acts chapter 10, verse 42, Peter said to Cornelius and his family that he was witnessing to, and he commanded us, Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to judge the living and the dead. And Paul echoed that in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. He said, I charge you, therefore, Timothy, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. He's coming back to judge. And there are many, many passages in the Old Testament that talk about his coming in judgment. I'll just give you one. In fact, turn to Zechariah 14. I'm going to pick this one because I want to talk about uh, something else that's mentioned here. But it's a passage that talks about Jesus coming to judge the rebels, the earth dwellers. In Zechariah 14, starting in verse 3, it says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley, half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it shall move toward the south. Now, the Bible says that when Jesus ascended back into heaven after his resurrection, you know, he spent 40 days with the disciples after he rose from the dead, talking about the kingdom and so on, and he traveled with them as far as Bethany, which is on the Mount of Olives, and as they were watching him, as you can imagine, ascend into the clouds, they were standing there, and he disappeared in the clouds, and suddenly two men dressed in white were standing by them and said, what are you guys doing looking up into heaven? This same Jesus that you've seen go is going to come again in like manner. 
As you've seen him go, he's going to come. He went into the clouds, he's going to come from the clouds. And interestingly, the same place he blasted off, he's going to touch down. The Mount of Olives. And the Bible says when he sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, it's going to cleave to the, north, to the south and to the north, opening up a valley from east to west. Of course, the valley is going to go, it's going to blast right through the grave site that was you know, planted there by the Muslims years ago to keep the Messiah from coming because, you know, they figured he can't go through a grave, a cemetery, he'll be defiled. So, you know, and they walled up the eastern gate, the golden gate. He's going to blast all that free and he's going to walk and we're going to be with him walking through that valley into the golden gate, through the golden gate into Jerusalem where he's going to sit down as king over the whole earth. But something else interesting is going to happen. As this valley is opened up from the temple all the way down, it says, to the Dead Sea, uh, there's going to open up at this point a spring right there at the throne, at the temple. And it's going to start as a trickle. As it trickles down this valley, it's going to grow bigger and bigger. And by the time it gets down to the Dead Sea, it's going to become a large river. And its waters are going to flow into the Dead Sea, and it's going to heal it. So that during the Millennial Kingdom, you're going to have fishermen fishing in the Dead Sea, which will become living again. Today, the Dead Sea is so dead, not even a microbe lives in it. That's how dead it is. But when the Lord comes, he's going to, you know, a fountain of living water is going to be opened up there, going to flow all the way. And of course, Jesus is the fountain of living water to all of us, right? We were all like the Dead Sea at one time, you know, dead in trespasses and sins. And yet we came to Christ and we drank of the living water that only he can give. In other words, we received him as Lord and Savior. And now we are alive spiritually and bring forth fruit and so on. But uh, then literally this is going to happen to the Dead Sea. You know, nothing like this is spoken of at the time of the rapture, which again, this is a separate occurrence. We don't see these things happen at the time of the rapture. All the scriptures that deal with the rapture, they don't talk about mountains cleaving and, and, uh, and rivers opening up and deserts being healed and blossoming like a rose. All of that is the second coming stuff. So keep those two separate. And by the way, let me just say this quickly. Here is where the chronology of Revelation picks up again. It was left off in chapter 16, verse 21. Chapter 17 and 18 and the first part of chapter 19 were kind of like a summary or, well, 17 and 18 were. And now chapter 19 begins. And really right here now, around verse 11, uh, is where the chronology picks up. Ended off, left off at chapter 16, verse 21. Now it picks up again. But in verse 12, it says, His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. Several things here. First of all, his eyes were like a flame of fire. We saw this symbolism in chapter 1. And when we saw it, we said that it speaks of his searching penetrating gaze with regard to sin. Jesus Christ has eyes of fire in the sense that he sees all sin and will judge all sin. The Bible says that nothing in creation is hidden from his sight, but all things are open and naked in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account. Now, of course, if we are believers, and I'm assuming everyone here is, we have been washed by the blood of Christ. We will not stand before him for our own sins because he's paid for those sins. But all unbelievers, of course, he's coming back 
with eyes of flaming fire. Fire speaks of judgment. Eyes can see, his eyes see everything. So he knows everything that every person has ever done. On his head were many crowns, it says. The word for crowns here is the Greek word diadems. And a diadem was the crown worn by a king. In contrast to another crown, which is translated crown in your Bible, in chapter 6, verse 2, there was another person coming, riding a white horse, wearing a crown. And a lot of commentators said, well, that's Jesus. No, that was a false Christ, the Antichrist. How do we know that? Well, he was carrying a bow. The Lord Jesus is always seen with a a sword. And that person wore a crown, but the Greek word is Stephanos. And that was the crown of a victor. Like when you would win a competition at uh, uh, the Olympic Games or some other sporting event, they would put the laurel wreath on your head. It spoke of being a victor. But this diadem is the crown of a king. And sometimes when a king conquered a city, he would place on his head, along with his own crown, the crown of the king that he had just conquered, signifying that he was now king of that king. Here Jesus is seen as wearing many diadems, many crowns, indicating that he is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Remember Psalm 2 verse 8, the father said to the son, ask of me and I will give to you what? The nations, plural, all the kingdoms of this earth to be your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Well, and finally, verse 12, it says he had a name written that no one knew except himself. Now, you'd be surprised as you study a book like this and read something like this, that people will come up to to me and say, what was that name? (laughs) No one knew it. No one knows it but the Lord. What do you think? I got special insight. I mean, you know, it says no one knew the name but the Lord himself. That's what it means. All right. I mean, I I don't know. We're never going to know the name. You know, I have a hard time believing when Paul, uh, John says, when he finally comes for us at the rapture and we are glorified and we see him as he, we're made like him for we see him as he is. And as Paul said, then I will know him even as I am known. I am not sure that what Paul is actually saying is I'm going to have all knowledge like God does. It just simply means I'm going to really know the Lord in a very personal way. I'm going to see him. Am I going to know everything about him that there is to know? I mean, I'd have to be God to to know all that. And I think that possibly in the eons yet to come, we are going to be learning things about him. I think heaven is going to be a place where all things are constantly becoming new, where we're going to be always learning about the Lord. I mean, it's going to take eternity to learn about God. I'm talking about, you know, a personal knowledge of him, right? So I don't, and maybe this is such just being said to us because there are some things about him we're never going to fully comprehend. I don't know. But it says in verse 13 that he, when he comes, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. The Greek is actually spattered with blood. Now, a lot of commentators say, well, this is simply the blood that he shed for our sins. It's a reminder of what he went through for us. I don't see it that way. Okay, in fact, turn to Isaiah chapter 63. I don't think this is Jesus' blood. I think it's the blood of his enemies. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, in Isaiah chapter 63, starting in verse 1, 
It says, who is this who comes from Edom? Edom would be uh, on the um, southeast side of the Dead Sea. Uh, that's the place, by the way, where the Jews are going to flee to Petra, right? Take refuge. They're going to flee to the rock city of Petra, where the Antichrist is not going to be able to touch those that make it there. And it seems as though Jesus Christ up, goes down there first and possibly, you know, uh, releases these people from this, you know, fortress, prison that they're in. And while he's down there, he battles some of the armies of Antichrist. But it says, who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Who is he? Jesus said, it's me. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? Of course, in those days, at the time of the grape harvest, they would throw all these grapes into a giant stone vat. And then people would climb in with bare feet and start squashing the grapes. And of course, the juice would splatter up. That's the imagery here, okay? And uh, why are your garments all, all, you know, splattered with blood like someone who treads the winepress? And Jesus said in verse 3, I've trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought me salvation for me, brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Well, we saw a glimpse of this in chapter 14, verse 20 of Revelation. Whereas we see this actually happening through John's eyes, it says, the, And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. And the idea is the, the, the blood splattered up to the horse's bridles. It speaks of Jesus Christ coming in judgment to destroy the armies of the Antichrist, those that have opposed him. Notice that no one helps him. He doesn't need any help. He is able to bring judgment all by himself. But back to Revelation 19, verse 13. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, this is a very common, familiar title for Jesus Christ. We see it in John's Gospel, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All th you know, he, uh, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was nothing made that was made, right? Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so this is a familiar title of Jesus Christ, that He is the Word. And there's a couple of reasons why He is called the Word. First of all, He is called the Word in the sense that He became the full revelation of God to mankind. All the way through the Old Testament, you had God revealing Himself and little bits and pieces of information, right? Through prophets, through visions and dreams and so on. 
All the way through, we have little bits and pieces of God revealing himself. But finally, Jesus stood in the earth and became the full disclosure of God's glory. Uh, he became the full revelation of God through the incarnation. In Hebrews chapter 1, starting at verse 1, the writer says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers, the Jewish fathers, by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. That's the second way his, he is the word of God, because the word of God is power. By the word of God, God brought all things into existence. Jesus Christ is that word. He spoke the world into existence. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory of God, the Trinity, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and so on. So the idea here is that when Jesus is called the word of God, it signifies the fact that he became the full revelation of God's person. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. He said,